0: This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. you're listening to the teaching ministry of our church, thank you for downloading this sermon. If you have any questions about the church, go to firstfam.org or call us at 904-264-2351. We are in the book of Acts, except for today. So today we're in the book of Matthew. Once we get through Palm Sunday and Easter, we're going to go back to the book of Acts, but we're taking a little detour to the book of Matthew today. And on this Palm Sunday, if you would, I want to invite you to turn to chapter 21. Chapter 21 of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to begin by reading verse 6. It says that the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. See, they copied our song right there, stuck it in the Bible, Hosanna in the highest. Now, I, I'm going to preface this again as I have to. Every time I reference a movie or a television show, whenever I reference one, that does not mean I'm telling you it's good and you should go watch it. I'm not a movie critic, and every time I reference it, somebody either online or in the room says, I can't believe you would tell us to go watch that movie. And I did not. Unless I mean, the only movie I would recommend is probably Old Yeller, but the end is really sad. So some of you have no idea what that is, but it's on Disney+, Plus. So you can catch up. Um, so there's been this complaint about Hollywood over the last few years. Really, it's been going on for quite some while, that there's nothing new and nothing original coming out of Hollywood. That there are no new stories. I mean, you got Magnum PI, and then you got another Magnum PI, and you got Hawaii 5.0, and you got another Hawaii 5.0, and then I'm waiting for the next Mork and Mindy. It's coming, but I don't know. Every show, it's like a re- a reboot, a retread, a reimagining. Nothing new, no creativity. And, I've heard some say, well, you know, well, you know, back in the old days, at least there was were original stories coming out. Until you realize that that's not true either. This is how it's always been. There have always been remakes and redos and reimaginings when it comes to movies and shows. There was a film. You may have you ever heard of the film A Star Is Born? Have you heard of this? Yes. So there's heads shaking everywhere. So you've heard of this, A Star Is Born. And as I can tell just by looking at the congregation, many of you here are fans of Lady Gaga. So Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, right? Is that who's in it? See, I didn't see it because I'm not recommending it. So A Star is Born came out in 2018. But some of you know that there was another version of A Star is Born, right? That starred who? Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. And for some of you now of a certain age, you're Googling Barbra Streisand and Chris Christopherson because you have no idea who they are. That's okay. But for those of you that think Barbra Streisand and Chris Christopherson starred in A Star is Born, and this is a remake, you need to know that A Star is Born came out in 1954 as well. The Streisand one came out in 76. And for those that think the 1954 one was such an original idea, you need to know that there, another version came out in 1937. Same movie different actors, (laughs) and a little bit of a different twist, perhaps, but ultimately the same story. The film The Great Gatsby came out a few years ago, but it wasn't the first one. In fact, it's not even the second one. There were numerous Great Gatsbys that have hit the theaters. And then back in 1985, a film starring Richard Pryor, again, not recommended, (laughs) titled uh, Brewster's Millions came out. And some of you are thinking back to when you used to own VHS tapes. You had copies of this. So Brewster's Millions came out in 1981 or 1985. But you might not be aware that Brewster's Millions also came out in 1961, 1945, 1935, 1926, and 1921. And none of them were very good. They just kept remaking it. A Christmas Carol has been redone I don't know how many times. We all know that the best theatrical version of A Christmas Carol is the one starring the Muppets, but all the others (laughs) have come out as well. So there really is not this uh, old Hollywood where everything was original and creative. It has been a redo and a remake and a reboot and a restart for over 100 years as films and stories keep coming out. Now, sometimes when these remakes are done, they're um, terrible. And maybe you had a great memory of the original, and so you're just offended that anybody would remake such a film. And sometimes they're actually, man, they're okay. And in some rare occasions, the remake is actually better than the original. It's amazing how sometimes that takes place. Sometimes the remakes are under different names, and you may watch a film and go, I didn't know it was a remake, but all of a sudden I think I've seen this. I saw The Magnificent Seven a few years ago. Again, I'm not recommending it, but nevertheless. It just came out, it's a new film. That's the one with Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt. Did you, you may not even be aware. But there's another one that had Yul Brynner in it, right? And six other people. That's why there were seven of them. But then there was this Japanese film that came out before that, which is what it was based on. So again, nothing new under the sun. When we talk about Palm Sunday, and that's what this is, Palm Sunday, there is this expectation of what the story is about. There is this known story among Christendom that when it's Palm Sunday, it is the story of Jesus on a donkey riding in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as it should be. That's what I just read. That's an incredible story. It is something that we must pause, read, think about, discuss, understand why it took place knowing that at that beginning of what is now deemed Holy Week, that happens, and then come Friday, we are celebrating the crucifixion or remembering the crucifixion of Christ, and come next Sunday, we are celebrating, as we do every Sunday, the resurrection of our Lord. So these are very important stories. Sometimes the the stories, as they're told, we sometimes think we may know all the details that need to be known about them, but I don't know that if you're aware that the story of Jesus riding on a donkey as a triumphal entry as the king of kings into that city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, that was not the first time that a king rode a donkey into Jerusalem. That's happened before. So I want to take you on a little historical journey, and some of you are going, oh, really? Yeah, don't worry, it's going to be great. Won't be there long. In the Old Testament, when there, there was this king... This king was considered the greatest king that Israel has ever had, the greatest earthly king at least, and he uh, was known as a man after God's own heart. You likely know who I'm speaking of. That's David. He was the second king of Israel after Saul. He is the one that we of course know as the young shepherd boy who killed the giant Goliath and, and then worked in the throne or in the, in the palace with, uh, with Saul, played the harp for him to calm down Saul's anger issues befriended Saul's uh, son Jonathan, and then after a lot of interesting stories, he eventually, as anointed by the prophet years prior, becomes the king of Israel. And he is David, the beloved, the one known as a man after God's own heart. Now, I want to lift him up as a great king, but you need to remember he's not a perfect man because this same David is the one we also know was a terrible father and not not uh, not the greatest spouse either. Man after God's own heart, a repentant man with a repentant and contrite heart, but also the one known for his encounter with Bathsheba, his, his adulterous affair, and to just add to that, the murder of Bathsheba's husband. Yes, he's guilty for that. So that's David. But in this story, he's no longer the shepherd boy. He's no longer the young king. He's no longer really the warrior king. He is in the twilight of his life, and his days on earth are coming to a close, and and he is in the palace, he's, like, he's a little bit ill, he's just, the days are, his days on earth will not be here much longer. And we see the story play out in 1 Kings because David had a number of sons, and he had, of course we know some of the names of his sons, some of them are very popular, but some of them just kind of dissipate or disappear through history. And there was one son named Adonijah, and Adonijah decided that he wanted to be king. Now this sounds like a movie, but this is real life. He decided he wanted to be king. So I'm gonna take you, if you would, just 1 Kings chapter one, five verses, beginning of verse five, just a little bio of Adonijah and what's going on. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. I want you to get this in your mind, this picture. He is planning a parade to honor himself. You ever know anybody that throws a party for themselves? That's him. I'm having a party, and it's about me, and I want you all to notice me. That's what he's doing. So he has these chariots, he has his horsemen, he has 50 men running before him. Verse 6, it says, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. We don't have time to get into Absalom, but he's got his own incredibly tragic story. He was good looking too, by the way, and had really great hair. Verse 7, he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Now, I know those names might not mean a whole lot to you, but just, just hang tight. Just know that Adonijah had some guys on team Adonijah. And then there was another group that were still on Team David. And they were not invited to the party. Verse 9, Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened calves, or cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all the brothers, all of his relatives, all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. I love that verse 9. He invited everybody, but then verse 10 is like, well, not quite everybody. Verse 10 says, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, who happened to be his brother as well. He didn't invite them. Everybody's invited to my parade and my party except those that are not invited. And I I wanna make sure that everybody knows I'm here, but I don't wanna mess with that group because I don't like them very much and they don't like me. Adonijah decided he wanted to be king and he gathered horses and chariots and created a parade that would rival any other. This guy is making a, a party for himself, a parade—it's Mardi Gras for Adonijah, and it's all about him. And the city knows it, and it's party time. But there's something about Adonijah we need to remember. He was not anointed to be king. He was not declared to be king. He was never supposed to be king. He looked like he could be king. If you were to pick potential king out of a lineup, Adonijah, good looking. Got influence? Obviously has influence. Got 50 guys running ahead of him. Apparently has a pretty nice chariot and some war horses too. He looked the part, but it was not to be. Now why is this the case? Because David had already made it clear by God's direct command to him that another of his son would, sons would be the, the appropriate and the rightful heir to the throne when David was no longer king, and that would be Solomon. Solomon was to be king this was a power play by Adonijah and it was little more than an attempt at a coup that's what this is it's a it's a a coup a military coup disguised as a party it's a hostile takeover attempt complete with threats for any rivals and not only was Adonijah's threat to his other family members who were not invited and even to the ones who were invited there were other half-brothers that were hanging out in the party But it was very clear, Adonijah was making very clear to them, in the pecking order of how things are, he was the boss. They were not. It was a threat to family members. It was definitely a threat to Solomon, who wasn't invited to the party. It was a threat even to his dying father, David. But ultimately, it was an attempt to usurp God's plans and promises. So ultimately, it was a threat to God and to God's people. See, God had already declared David's heritage in 1 Chronicles 22, 9 and 10. It states, Behold, a son shall be born to you, God speaking uh, through the prophet to David, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. I share all of that just so you kind of get the understanding of what's going on in the politics and the family dynamic of David's life at this time. Now Solomon's not invited, the party's going on, it's a celebration to rival any celebration in the city, old man sick David is in his home, and now it's one thing for Solomon to not be invited, it's another thing for Solomon's mama to find out he wasn't invited. So Bathsheba, the mama, comes up and goes to David to let him know what Adonijah is doing and to inquire if something has changed. From her understanding, Solomon, her son, would be the next king. Did something change she was not made aware of? And if that were the case, old man David's done. You know that, right? She asks him that. And David is shocked that this is even happening. So here's what David does. He affirms that Solomon is the rightful heir and will be king when he dies. Then he gathers the prophet Nathan, the priest Zadok, and his godly advisor Benaiah. Do those names sound familiar? Those are the guys that never got the invitation to come to the party. They come to gather around David, and David meets with them, his advisors, the prophet, the priest, and the king, all meeting together. And David instructs them to get Air Force One ready. And so there is an Air Force One, it's just not a plane, it's a mule. It's the royal mule. You didn't know there was a royal mule, but there's a royal mule. That word could be transliterated donkey and other aspects, but in the Old Testament it is defined and described as a royal mule. So he says, get the royal mule and tell Solomon to get here. And when Solomon arrives, he says, Solomon, I want you to get on the, ro- on the mule, the royal mule, and they're going to anoint him as king and you're going to enter into the city riding this mule. See what happened is when when Solomon got on the mule and he starts entering into the city from the east the people in the city saw Solomon on the royal mule and they started coming to him and started praising God and celebrating and dancing. Does this sound familiar? Now, while that's happening with old Solomon, young Solomon anyway, sitting on a mule riding into town with oil dripping off his head because he's been anointed, there's a party going on on the other side of town that Adonijah still is trying to keep going, but what happens quickly is the party fizzles because God's anointed is now in town. It's amazing how this plays out, and it's amazing that we don't hear a whole lot more and talk much more about Adonijah after this. He lifted himself up to be the king, he was not to be the king, and here comes the king riding on a mule across the Kidron Valley and the Gihon Spring to be anointed and declared king of Israel when the death of David occurs. A few hundred years, hundreds of years actually later, another would come riding into the city from the very same area, from that eastern area. This time, this gentle and lowly servant would be riding again on a donkey. And he would be met with celebration and from a crowd singing and declaring, Hosanna, you are glory to God in the highest, Hosanna the king. You see, this story had been done before. But unlike bad movies and remakes, the story of the Old Testament king entering on a mule into the city to declare who he is so that the city would recognize who the king truly was All that was was a precursor and a prophecy for what would eventually take place. See, God is not writing this Bible on the fly. That's all planned out. It's not random that Solomon's on a mule entering into the city to be praised as the new king. And so when Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, those that know, meaning the Jews who read their Old Testament, are going, hmm, this seems really familiar. I think I've read this before, but this time, it's different. This time, it's better. It's a foreshadowing of a greater triumphal entry. When the people saw Solomon, and as he wrote in, it affirms something about the religious people in David's day. The priests, the prophets, quote unquote, that aligned with team Adonijah were proven to be phonies. See, there were religious people that, and they were named earlier, that hung out with Adonijah, that were a part of the parade, that were a part of the party, that were lining up with who they thought would be the next king, so that they themselves would have influence and power. This is not new news. This happens all the time. But when Solomon wrote in, it became very clear, very quickly, that all the religious people that hung out with Adonijah were phonies, and therefore they couldn't change their party and join the other party across the aisle and become uh, Solomonites. They're done. There's another thing, the military that came in with that incredible chariot and those horses and those 50 men running, they looked like they were in charge and they were men of power, but when Solomon rode in, those military leaders, including Joab, were proven not to be in charge at all and to have no lasting power. You see, Adonijah was not king, Solomon was, and anyone who lined up with the phony king was a phony. For only Solomon, the one riding on the back of the royal mule, could truly be the king. Interesting. When Jesus came riding in on his unassuming animal, that donkey, that mule... It harkened back to this moment in David and Solomon's story. Jesus rode down the same road. He entered the same city. It was hundreds of years later, but he didn't come in on a chariot. He didn't come in riding a war horse. And I know some of you want to jump to Revelation a little too quickly, but notice he didn't come in on a horse. He came in on the back of a donkey, fulfilling not only the story that was prophesied by illustration in what I just read, but also from the prophet Zechariah as well. Now, how would King Herod, just think of this, other players in that new testament story how would king herod have entered the city had he entered in at that time it wouldn't have been on a donkey and it wouldn't have been incognito it would have been with a chariot and with horses and with a lot of fanfare herod enters the city much like adonijah did now what if pontius pilate the roman governor enters into the city how does he enter the city Well, he's going to have his Roman version of secret service ahead of him. He's going to have military protection. There may be blowing horns to let everybody know, here he comes, everybody get out of the way. Sounds a whole lot like Adonijah. But when the true king enters, he comes on the back of an unassuming animal. And just as in Solomon's coronation, Jesus' entry declares something. The Pharisees that did not recognize Jesus to be king were proven to be phonies, to be wrong, to be major misinterpreters of Scripture. And the military leaders that lined up and against him were proven to maybe have a temporal power, but not ultimate power over the story. Solomon's entry foreshadowed the entry of Christ. Now, there's the, that's, there's the history story. I don't know if you've ever connected those dots. I don't know if you even knew Solomon rode in on a donkey or a mule at one point. And some of you are going, yeah, that's a great history story. Other than, you know, maybe a test or being on Jeopardy, why would I care, right? Because this entry of Jesus, this entry of the king into the city is not something that should remain just a historical event, for there is a next triumphal entry to come. And in some cases, it's already happened to those in this room. The Son of God, God the Son, riding on the back of a donkey, enters Jerusalem to the celebration. He is the king. Make sure you understand this. He is not made king by those who say Hosanna. He is revealed to be king at that moment. He's been king. He is the king. This righteous, holy, perfect king was putting in place his kingdom. And ultimately, everybody in the city would bow to him, either then or eventually, and just like everybody on the planet will eventually bow to Christ, either now or eventually. But thanks be to God, as we see this story play out, that God's plan was playing out according to his design. Christ would enter into the city to the celebration of the people, and the same people that said Hosanna, Hosanna are likely part of the same crowd that eventually, not just a few days later, said, crucify, crucify. Amazing what a few days can do. We will talk about the cross on Friday, and one of those seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross is, it is finished. It is finished. And one of our pastors will break into that and talk about what that means. But but let me just give you a little preview of something that maybe you've not thought about. Just because Jesus says it is finished when hanging on the cross does not mean that Jesus is done. For Jesus still intercedes. He still advocates as the New Testament reveals. Jesus' story is not one that comes to the cross and stops or even comes to Easter Sunday and stops. God's story plays out continually, and I think sometimes we just need that reminder there. Jesus riding in on a donkey. Jonathan Edwards said this in one of his writings. The Puritans had this way of taking one verse out of Scripture and writing a whole book about it. And they would just dig into one verse and one passage and go deep and go deep and go deep. And Edwards is talking about the beauty of Christ, and, and he speaks of it in, in such a way. He says that our natural, our eyes, by nature, are drawn to beauty. We, we are drawn to beauty. It's artistic. It's, it's, you know, how, many, how, many, how many sunrise pictures can you see on Facebook? They're beautiful. That's why they're there. People go, man, look at that. We are drawn to beauty. Christ rides in on a donkey to the glory of God. And the glory of God is seen. We speak about the glory of God a lot. But I'm not quite sure we all have the same definition of what that means. What is the glory of God? Is it some ethereal concept that we just kind of hold on to because it sounds religious? What is this image? Here's what Edwards said. Sight of the divine beauty of Christ that bows the wills and draws the hearts of men. A sight of the greatness of God in his attributes may overwhelm men. I don't know that we like talking about Christ as this great beauty, but the most beautiful thing happening and the most beautiful image in Jerusalem that day was a non-handsome man riding on the back of of a smelly donkey into the city for the glory of God. And the eyes of the people are drawn to him because this is not what we expected. My prayer for us is that as we think of Christ and the glory of God and the beauty of God, that just as the people were so overwhelmed at that moment 2,000 years ago that they're looking for palm branches and they're singing Hosanna, that we too would be so overwhelmed with the beauty of Christ that all the troubles of the world will fall in place as we worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, there's a need for a triumphal entry again. But there's not a need for a triumphal entry of the king to ride a donkey into the city of Jerusalem right now. There's not a need for him, even if you kind of want to say, hey, well, you know, it's all political. There's no need for him to ride into Washington, D.C., or to Tallahassee, or Jacksonville, or even Orange Park. In fact, it'd be kind of, there, there's really no need for us to go outside and line the streets of Kingsley Avenue, lie on the sides of it, and hope that here he comes riding down Kingsley Avenue on a donkey. But there is a need for an entry of Christ into the story, and that triumphal entry needs to take place right here, in your heart, in your life. This is the biggest challenge I think Western American Christians especially struggle with, we can say the amens and we can sing ha- Hosanna and we can hallelujah ourselves until we feel good about it. But the concept of a king is something that messes with our mind. Now, you might not think so, but just think of this. Think of this. I was in a conference years ago. I've shared this with you, but I was in a conference in Texas with a, a ministry that focuses on church planning and focuses on international missions. And in that room, they had some international pastors and, and, and really a, a large group of pastors from Vietnam. And uh, Vietnam is an interesting story in and of itself of what's going on there with the church right now. And, and that's hard for some even to comprehend that some of you are there in Vietnam. you under, It's a different place. It's not necessarily a godly place, but nevertheless, the church is, is, is having roots put there and home churches are growing. But there were other internationals in the room as well. And one of the men from another nation said this, and he wasn't being condescending and he wasn't talking down about America. He was just making a statement of his observation after being in the States and working with American Christians for a long time. Here's what he said. He said, American Christians tend to seem to have a major issue with fully understanding this concept of kingship, this king of kings concept. And that, you know, first, after, you know, after you get over being a little offended that someone said that about you, you're going, why are you saying that? He says, because here's the deal, your nation was built on a rebellion to a king. And that's just, I mean, it's not saying it's good. I'm I'm happy we did it. But nevertheless, sorry to all my English friends. Um, We rebelled against a king and we held tightly to independence and waved the banner of freedom. That's good. But in our theology, we struggle with submitting to a king because we are so independent. That sometimes I I fear that we, we say he is king of kings, but we treat him like he's just the president of presidents, and after four years we'll get another one that will do what we want. See, when we make Jesus in our own image rather than worship him as the king who he truly is, we tend to get tired of him when his rules start infringing on our freedoms. But when the king comes riding into your life, you are overwhelmed with his great beauty and the glory of God. And if he's going to be king, he has to have access to the throne in your life. There's not a, it's not a two-seat porch swing. He's either, he's not your co-pilot. He's either driving or he works for you. The king of kings is waiting for a triumphal entry into the hearts and minds of people. And in many cases in this room already, it's already occurred, and praise be to God for that. But in some cases, some of you still are saying no. You're not ready. In the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls, he desires to be king Now, can I just fix some language we've added to evangelicalism over the past two decades? You've heard it. I've heard it. You may have even said it. I probably have said it. People say, you know, I got saved at age eight, but I made him Lord of my life at age 12. You heard things like that? Let me just go ahead and fix some language because words matter. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. And you don't make him king. He is king. If you have the power to make Jesus Lord, then you're more powerful than Jesus. If you have the power to make him king, then you're the king or the queen, right? You're the one. Jesus was not made king by riding into the city, but he was revealed to be king so that all could discover who he has always been. He is king. He is Lord. The question is not what we make him. The question is, what do we make of ourselves before him? Now, in conclusion, oh, you just looked at your watch, didn't you? That's the earliest in conclusion. Don't let it get to your head. I've got 18 pages of in conclusion. So look at this. Once upon a time, once upon a time, most times, fairy tales begin with once upon a time, and they're not true stories, but in this case, this is a true story. Once upon a time, a father told his son to get on a mule and ride into town. A prophet, a priest, and a king ensured the moment occurred, and the king was eventually crowned, Solomon. Hundreds of years later, a father told his son to get on a donkey and ride into town. But in this case, the son didn't need a prophet, priest, and king, for the son was the prophet, priest, and king. And when he rode into town, he wasn't riding into town to to be uh, coronated as the king, for he had already and always has been king. But he was revealed to be who he was so the world would see. There's a lot of confusion in the world regarding authority in the life of individuals, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to this kingship and this leadership. And, 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 you know, I say, hey, he comes humbly riding on a donkey. And people go, yeah, but in Revelation 19, he's riding in on a white horse, and he's going to just take over and destroy everything. And yes, he is. But can I say thanks be to God it hasn't happened yet? I mean, I know it's coming. But I think some Christians just really want this, the, 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 the destruction to hurry up and happen. But the love of our Lord is such that while that day is coming, that coming, that second coming, that judgment upon for everyone, the Father has delayed it at least to this point because he loves you so much. And he is drawing you to himself. Because when he rides in on the horse, it's too late for those that do not know him. But if you let him ride in on a donkey into your life and surrender your life to him as your king, everything changes. There's a lot of confusion in our world there's confusion where nationalism seems to be the driving force for many. There, there are some looking for a king riding on a donkey, but they're not looking at that donkey. They're looking at a political donkey. And if they don't like that donkey, they want him riding in on an elephant. They want somebody to ride in on some specific animal to take over the world and to make everything the way they want it. But that's not the king we serve where coups are taking place in foreign lands, where those in power are only in power for a season, and that's true for everybody that's in power around the world today, that which must be addressed, that which must be answered is this. Is Jesus Christ, or has Jesus Christ, ridden into your life triumphantly to the glory of the Father to reign over you, not as a despot king, but as the only good king who does so much so that you may have life. He is the savior of the redeemed. He is the son of the most high God. He is the rightful heir to the throne. And he wants to be your king. He doesn't want to be the king of all those that get their act together. You ever know anybody like that? You keep inviting them to church, you keep talking about Jesus, and they're like, yeah, well, you know, if you knew what I did, and uh, we do, you're on social media too. And then You know, well, but I got to get my act together. I can't, you know. And everybody has this mental list of all the reasons that their sin is keeping them from coming to Christ. They may not be saying it out loud, but they're saying it in their head. And they actually are saying it out loud that the Jesus we speak of is not stronger than the sin that I have. That's what they're saying. So people try to get their act together first. But this king is not the king who wants to reign over everybody that got their act together because there is nobody that has their act together. There's nobody. He is not that king. And he's not some king in a royal family that has absolutely no power but just has a lot of money and does specials on Oprah. Not that family, not that king. This king has power. He's not a king in a fantasy novel either, but a king who is sovereign, Lord, loving, good, and not just a king. You remember that passage where it says we're like joint heirs with Christ? We become like brothers and God the Father gets to be our Father. God loves you so very much, and I think we minimize this. I was reading a book by Dane Ortland. He mentioned it this way he said it 's kind of like uh, the love we, the comfort and the love our Father has for us, our heavenly Father, if we would just believe that. think of it this way. Dane mentions that he has a i think a three year old toddler, and he took his three year old to the, the the pool in there in their subdivision, or the public pool. Now, I don't know, that swimming pool, maybe you've seen them like this, where they, you have pools where you jump in, but you also have those pools that are kind of low, low ramps. You just kind of slide right into there, and, and, and you little kids and, and people with bad knees like me can just kind of walk in. So he tells a story. He says he's got his little boy, or his, I guess it's a boy, his, his toddler, who is walking, and, and Dane has his finger right here, and the little boy is holding tightly to that finger, right? Because it's exciting to get in the water, but it's a little nerve-wracking because here's the water. So Dane and his boy are walking in, and as he steps in, he said, the little boy holds tighter and tighter and tighter because the water is getting higher and higher and higher. But he wants to get in. And then all of a sudden, there's that moment, and it happens. You may not pick where it actually happens, but it's the moment where the son is no longer holding tightly to the father, but it is recognized that it is the father who is holding up the child because he's not going to let anything happen. He's going to hold on tightly. Your heavenly father. In those moments of where are you God and why is this happening? And life isn't fair. He's holding tightly to his children. For some it may just mean that we've forgotten he's our king and we've treated him like he's our boss. But temporary. And for others we're not believers. And his hand is opening, open to you and he's saying would you just grab hold. Would you just grab hold? God is glorified in what the Son has done and Jesus is the Savior. The cross is coming. The resurrection is coming. And while it is the cross is finished, the work is not done. Christ is the Savior of the redeemed. He is the Son of the Most High God. He is the rightful heir to the throne. He is King. He is gentle. He is humble. He is tender. He is loving. He is holy and for some today it is time for you to recognize that Jesus does not desire your palm leaves and your hosannas but he desires you he loves you that much and as is often not said among adults in Christian settings especially adults like me with the gift of sarcasm I love you too. But my love for you pales in comparison to his. You cannot make the king the king, but you can surrender to him as your king. And I pray that happens today. Let's pray together. And if you have a decision to make, God is stirring something up within you. Some of you are going, oh good, it's over. I don't have to deal with it. That's not how this works. You'll probably have to deal with this for the rest of your life unless you deal with it today. When I say deal with it, I mean give up, surrender, say yes to Jesus, allow him to be king of your life. If you're online watching us at home or, or elsewhere, and you, you can let us know through an email or through a, a message on our Facebook page or YouTube page. You can call us here at the church. The number should be at the bottom of the screen. For those in the room, you can do all of that as well. But we'll be here at the end of the service if you want to speak to one of our pastors personally. I'm going to pray for you, and then Jordan's going to close us in a song. Father, I thank you for your word, for your truth, and the fact that Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, and not because I said so, but because you did. I thank you, Father, that we have a good king, a king who loves us deeply, a king who sacrificed his own life so that we could have life, not just here on earth, before eternity Father I thank you Lord that in the midst of singing Hosanna to you we, we are making a declaration of your identity and of your sons but as I say dear Father in my prayers my, my deepest heartfelt prayer today is that those in the room and those watching online and those that may be watching at a later date would be able to call you Father as well For we know the truth. All human beings are your creation, but only those who have surrendered to you have the rights and the privileges of a child of God. And Lord, I'd love to see my family increase. I pray that happens today in Jesus' name.